Welcome to the Your Money Personal Finance Podcast, episode number 16, season three. I'm Peter Sashecki, your host, president of Everything Financial Group. And today, as we work our way through the Omni formula, as we've been doing this whole season, we're going to talk about separation and finances. We're joined by Sarah Morse, accredited family law mediator, there's a title and a half, arbitrator and parenting coordinator to help answer the key questions. And Sarah's with the firm BTM Lawyers in Port Moody, British Columbia. So welcome. I'm, I'm sure you're going to make this exciting today. <laughs> as, as exciting as uh, separation and divorce can be. Because I'm sure you never deal with conflict in your job at all. <laughs> never happens. Never happens. So let's start um, really from the beginning of this and see if we can get through some of this stuff and hopefully make it easy for people to understand, make it something they don't have to fear and maybe help them realize it doesn't have to be ugly because this is the type of stuff that can get really ugly. And, and I know people say they make jokes when it gets ugly. Well, the only people who win are the lawyers because they make all the money. But I know you and I know a lot of other lawyers from your firm and other lawyers I've dealt with. And I know lawyers who specifically deal with divorce and none of them like it. To put it, I wouldn't say that it's not that we don't like it, but I think most of us go into it with a view of trying to help people through what is one of the most difficult circumstances they'll ever face, other than probably the death of a loved one, with uh, as much ease as we can. We don't want it to be difficult for them. Yeah, you're not not all there trying to pad the bill, as people sometimes think. No, I mean, and and that's why I I have those other accreditations for mediation and um, parenting coordination and arbitration. That's all with a view to trying to help people resolve things without having to go to court and spend lots of time and money in litigation, which is stressful and difficult and it's not great for anyone. I know one lawyer in a case where it went full on to the wall and it was a huge case in BC and it went to court. I don't know if he's ever practiced since then. It was that stressful. (laughs) Like, Like he had to take a lot of time off and he won. Yeah. Well, not that anyone really wins, but... They got the judgment. Let's put it that way. But but yeah. still, you become very invested in, and in it. Still burned them out clients. completely. Yeah. yeah. So um, let's go with this one first off. The first question, because I hear so many different things on these, and I'm not the expert. That's why you're here. How long does a couple have to be together before separation of finances? Before they have to separate their finances? Before it becomes an issue? Well, really, all it is is it comes down to. Um, the definition of what what a spouse is typically. So you are spouses after you've been together, living together in a marriage-like relationship for a period of two years or more. So basically up until that two-year point, you kind of are free to do what you want, but once you hit that magic number, you want to make sure that you're protected. So it's two years. Now I've heard some jokes about this, so I'm gonna be a little offside and funny because it's my podcast, I can do whatever I want. (laughs) So I've heard different jokes about separation. So what is defined a separation, and and I, you, you almost know where I'm going with this. I've heard separation is defined as the date you last. I'm I think said. I see where you're going with said. that. That's what I've heard. <laughs> really, it's it, it's quite simple. It's either telling someone you no longer uh, wish to be in this relationship, or acting as if you're no longer in that relationship. So it's more of the intention part of it. I mean, the biggest question we always get is. How can I legally separate? Well, it's it, it's not that cut and dry, I suppose. It's really, you're not intending to be in that relationship anymore. And, and anything you've done 
to <laughs> exhibit that is is enough. So someone elsewhere is kind of done. But and the reason we're kind of having tongue in cheek with it because why not? But it, it really did come up that question because of COVID. Because yeah. a lot of people separated, they're no longer acting as if they're a, a spousal relationship or a couple relationship. But they couldn't go anywhere except. You take that room and I'm taking this room. And, and that's what we're seeing a, a, a huge increase in now, especially in the lower mainland where it's incredibly expensive to live and this increase in housing prices is no longer people able to just say, you know, I'm out and go and find a new place to live. They simply can't afford it. So people are now having to stay for extended periods of time in the family home together, which is not necessarily great for them or the the children. So I think that might be why we're seeing more people resolving things by way of mediation and, and other ways outside of court, which tend to be a little bit quicker. So... I'm asking this for clients kind of in a way because I, I so many different things come across our desk when we're doing financial plans and all of a sudden we find out things we didn't know before and then that's we call you guys or call other <laughs> colleagues of ours. So, and I know when it comes to divorce, let's down the street, that, that um, adultery and there's other things, why you're getting divorced doesn't matter because it's 50-50, which I'm going to get into in a minute. For the most part, we're going to expand on that a little bit. But someone acting on something to be no longer part of the marriage, which would mean there's somebody else for the last six months. Mm -hmm. And if they admitted to there's been somebody else for the last six months, isn't that kind of when the separation begins? Of course, you would have to get that. But there's a difference. And I think there's a lot of um, misunderstanding there in terms of separation and divorce. Okay. So to get a divorce is sort of the paperwork the, that you do at the end of your separation to document everything. And that's after you've been separated for a year. You can speed that up if there has been, like you say, adultery. or. Okay. So the separation year yes. could be backdated to six months ago if someone was doing one of these things that well, you indicated no, I'm no longer part of this relationship. If they're willing to swear an affidavit for part of the divorce process. In this case, that happened. The person somehow <laughs> oh, there you go. They convinced them to swear in an, in an well, affidavit that this was going on. a much quicker divorce. But the reality is, is you've got to resolve all these other things first. You need to deal with parenting time if there's kids and uh, child support, spousal support, vision of property and, and debt and all of that. And that takes time. So you need to resolve all of that before the courts are going to give you divorce. Okay. Because it's not like anyone it. makes emotional decisions when it comes to this stuff at never. all. No, never. never. So um, cohabitation agreement. Um, do these work um, if, you, if someone gets one going into it, as we always say, it's preparing for the divorce while you still get along, but do they absolutely. work and, and how long are they good for, or are they valid forever or how does that yeah, work? I mean, absolutely. They're one of the best ways, especially here in the lower mainland where people are often sitting on uh, very expensive properties and assets. It's really important, especially if you're going into a, uh, you know, a second, third, fourth, or whatever you have um, in terms of relationships, <laughs> then typically you want to protect your assets. So oftentimes you, if you've built up your assets over your relationship and you want to make sure those are going to your kids, not to spouse number three, the best thing you do is get a cohabitation or marriage agreement they can be done at, at any time. You basically are documenting what you've each brought into the relationship and how you want to deal with that property down the road. 
So you can do that. And if it's done properly, then they're extremely effective. The only way those typically would be challenged is if there was a lack of financial disclosure or there, there's something that's been misrepresented. Um, and then fraud. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you even disclose some assets um, or it's done under duress or any other sort of contractual um, you know, circumstances, then that may be an issue down the road. So you just want to make sure it's all done properly. And that's why you, you spend the money. You go to a lawyer, get one done up properly and it can be used to protect you down the road. And to make it valid, and this is a question because I don't know the answer to this, but in a cohabitation agreement, because I know when you're getting a divorce, even in the case of mediation, each person gets represented by their own lawyer or has someone look over the document before they sign. So is that the case with a cohabitation agreement? Even though they may come to you, the two of them, to write this up, should each person... So spouse one, you're their lawyer, you're designing it. Yep. Spouse partner two coming into the situation before signing. They take it for what's someone called else. independent legal advice okay. or ILA. So they either are going to go and have a lawyer walk them through it, make sure they understand what they're signing, and then they sign a certificate of ILA. They can waive it as well, and they can sign a certificate basically saying, I understand this agreement. I'm I'm okay with waiving independent legal advice if it's fairly straightforward. Um, but then you, you do run that risk that down the road, if someone says, oh, well, I, I don't know if this was fair. I'm, I want to apply to court to maybe vary it. If you don't have that independent legal advice, it, it, you know, it does help. So it's really worthwhile to go and get independent legal advice to make sure that agreement is as good as it can be. So if you're a, if you're one of the partners, man or woman, doesn't matter, depends who has, you know, putting that forward as the assets, you really probably want to make sure the other partner in the situation here does go get the independent legal advice. Because otherwise, why put it all together if you're leaving that crack in the door yeah. for later on? for it to be challenged. I mean, just get it done. 100%. And what it does is it also forces you to be upfront about your finances. It forces you to have those difficult conversations that many of us going into our relationships don't have. And it's really important to get all that on the table, on the table and making sure that you just, you, you each know how things are going to go in the unlikely event that it doesn't work out. Okay. So Let's go down the road that it didn't work out because <laughs> that's what we're here for is separation of assets and finances, et cetera. Is it always 50 50? Well, under our, our, our provincial legislation, it's presumptively it starts at a 50 50 split. Um, however, that's that's family property. So that's not taking into account your excluded property. So what you bring into a relationship typically is yours and yours alone. It's only the growth okay. or increase in value of that property. So, for example, if you had RSPs worth $100,000 coming into the relationship, it's the increase in growth of those. And now they're worth five hundred. dollars yep. 200 each. Yes. So or, that's yeah. the growth that you would okay. get from that excluded property. However, if you had a cohabitation agreement that said your property is yours alone, including any increase in value, oh. then you get to keep all your excluded property. Hence why those agreements can be really important. So yes, 50-50 is the starting point, but there's also um, circumstances where you may look at that and say, mm, something here means that we should look at dividing this unequally. 
What what about um, in in keeping in tune with that fifty fifty? And I see this a lot, unfortunately, a few cases right now, where a business is involved, where you know the person has a corporation, but they you know the corporation really grew from the start of the relationship or during the relationship and you get the person, the spouse going, well, and they bought like, because this is where the creative accounting comes in where they've definitely, they've purchased assets, they've purchased tons of assets, but they've done it all through the corporation because that's where I come in. Like that makes more sense to do that in your financial plan. And they're trying to go, well, we don't own that. We don't own that. X, Y, Z owns that or X, Y, Z paid for that. But X, Y, Z is really still, it, it's part of the, the relationship, family. The, yep. the family relationship. Yeah, and and usually the, the the family has either gone into debt at some point. There's been you know, shareholder loans, or one of the spouses has pulled themselves out of the workforce or done other things to help grow that business. That's still bus- family property as well. So what we typically do, where there are businesses involved, is we retain a business valuator to come in and they will request all of the financials for the business and they can do a a business valuation and b a guideline income report so determine when looking at all of that what is that person's um, actual income for purposes of child and spousal support because we're not financial experts so let's clarify that again so with when it comes to a business and figuring out how to divide up the business what it's worth you need a business evaluator and a guideline income, income report. report. Yeah, I mean, we typically use those You know, when, when we're dealing with something more than just sort of a, a mom and pop shop. It's really important to be able to look at that business because the deductions that a person can make for income tax purposes can be quite different in terms of looking at what their actual income is than what they're showing on their income tax return. So it's really important to a determine what the business is worth because that's a family asset and there's just been if there's been growth during the relationship, then you know the other spouse is likely entitled to a portion of that. And then as well, the issue of income. So if there are questions of child or spousal support, you can't assess that without knowing their income. So a guideline income report is a great way to have someone else that is experienced go through all of those um, income statements and come up with a guideline income. Which lead me to my next question. You're actually <laughs> professional. Look at this, right, right into, into it. Walk right into it. <laughs> so how does support really work? I, and I know there's spousal, but there's also child support. So two what, very different concepts. Yeah. So how how do they differ? So child support is really it's something that is legislated. So it's set out in our legislation. We have something called the child support guidelines. They're federal, but then there is each province has their their own table. And really what it's for is looking at if somebody is making a certain amount of income and they have X amount of children, this is how much they're going to pay in child support. And again, that, that all relates to where the children are residing. Are they residing primarily with one parent? Are they in a shared parenting situation? And what are, what's the income differential? Isn't there a percentage there I think I've read? There were... So parent A makes 300 grand a year, parent B makes 50 grand a year, but the kids spend, and and correct me because I'll be wrong, I'm going to be more than 60% of the time with parent A, parent B would actually be paying support support to parent A, even though 
they make way less. Am I? Oh, I see. Sorry. Um, so I think what you're talking about is a, a, a set off. So if one parent has the child or children more than 60% of oh, the I time. Oh, right? You have the percentage <laughs> right. So it's one step in the right direction. So if there, if one parent has the kids more than 60% of the time, then the other non-custodial parent will pay full table child support. So whatever those tables say in terms of income. here's your income, here's your pro- the province you're in, your, your income, here's how much you're going to pay. Okay. If, however, the kids are in a shared parenting arrangement, and that's that's not that's necessarily 50-50, it's where both parents have the children at least 40% of the time. So whatever that schedule looks like, then you look at both of their incomes. So how much does parent A pay to parent B? How much does parent B pay to parent A? And that differential is what the higher earning payer will pay. So it, it's not as straightforward as it seems, but there's calculators online. I, that's what I was going to say. Isn't that the family maintenance? So it, you can look up the thing? there's a, there's child support calculators oh, okay. all over the internet. We have software that we use, or you can literally go to the federal child support guidelines and and look it up. So you have some idea of what you might have to pay. So let's jump ahead to to keep in that topic when. If something changes a year or two down the road as far as the percentage of time with parent A or B mm-hmm. or someone, a, a job situation, bad or good, a huge promotion, loss in wages, how difficult is it for the parent to revisit? Because I've heard of horror stories from <laughs> clients where the ex is demanding you pay me now this or doesn't want to go back to the well because now they're making more money and revisit about the support. What does someone do when they're kind of getting screwed on this because the other parent knows they don't have the money to fight it? And they're still forcing it. But it's supposed to be a federally and I guess provincially whatever mandated, like you said, there's there's yeah. there's calculators online that is supposed to make this simple. But how simple is it if but one can't fight? But you actually have to go and do it. So either is going to be by agreement between the parties. So typically in a court order or an agreement, you have a review clause. So saying that every year after tax season, so say in June of each year, you're going to exchange your financial documents. So your um, T1 general, your T4, your notice of assessment. So there's typically a, a requirement that you exchange those each year and then you adjust your table support so child support on an annual basis. And that takes into account the fact that most people's income is not static. It's going to change from year to year. So there's that. But if you're, say, partway through the year and you're laid off, um, so you're in a job that just uh, for whatever reason that that sector is is no longer, you know, there's not a lot of jobs in that area. And it's a legitimate workforce reduction. The reality is your income has dropped, so you you cannot convince your former spouse that here's my here's my new income and this is why then you likely are having to make an application to court to vary your child support and, and what about when you get the spouse be this amazing what comes across my desk but you need to get the spouse who plays with the finances because they have a good accountant like they literally now the new husband or the new wife whatever it's both you know all of a sudden I've I found a way with the way I get paid through my company 
to pawn off $100,000 on them. So suddenly I went from making, not, that not me, but the person went from making 200000 to 100000 Oh, sorry, you now owe me because I'm making half of what I made before. Well, luckily there is a lovely provision under Section 19 of the Child Support Guidelines, which allows a court to impute income. So what that means is you can't, the day after you uh, get divorced or separated, you can't just go and decide you're going to quit your $150,000 a year job and go work at McDonald's. You will... Free plug for them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a McDonald's fan, but... <laughs> Probably, yeah, but we all have kids who have worked there, I think, so, yeah. So what it means is you you can't just have a, a drop in income because you're choosing to work less or not work to your ability. So the court expects that you will work to a level that you're capable of earning. So mm -hmm. they'll, they'll typically look at your historical income. And if you have typically made $100,000 a year for the past three years, they're going to say you are capable of earning it at that level. Unless you've become disabled or something has happened that legitimately impacts your ability to work. But you can't just decide... I'm going to take a lower paying job to avoid my child support yeah. obligations. Take what we went through in the last couple of years. I was making, you know, the person was making 200 grand a year and they decided, ah, forget this, I'm going to go collect CERB. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there was some of that going on too. Yeah, I mean, it, we hear it all the time. Well, I'm just going to quit my job then. I'm like, mm, well, then you're going to be paying support on what is actually a low income, but you're still going to be paying. You're going to be paying based on the income, yeah. but you're not going to have the money to do it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. One of the uh, last one I want to kind of hit you with, it's one of the ones that comes up all the time is obviously it's division of assets with what we do and division of, as, as in investments, I mean, like you have RSPs, TFSAs, non-registered investments, so the cash, the money, but then you have the other spouse who doesn't have any of that stuff, but they work for the federal or the provincial government or municipal government and they have an amazing pension. And so one has a value Cut and dry, it's on a statement. Yeah. They have a, you know, use an RSP example we had earlier, they have a half a million dollars, let's say, and the other person has a pension. Which How does that valuable. then, because it's not that you can just look at it and go, no. you get this, you get that. It's not apples to apples, exactly. No, it's not. With the with RSPs, basically, you're, gonna, you're going to equalize those. So you just look at what spouse A has, what spouse B has, and then you'll, you can roll those over um, under right. uh, a spousal rollover under the Income Tax Act. Pensions, because it's not necessarily the amount of your contributions, it's, it's what's the value of the pension plan. So typically what we do with those is those are um, something where they are just split under the um, uh, under legislation. So you you would just agree that it's going to be divided, and you will um, fill out some paperwork with your pension benefits administrator and agree to divide it. The other option, and you look at the dates of entitlement. Yeah, I was going to say because it's divided when you're 45. Well, there's a big difference in what that pension is going to be when you're 65. Well, and it's all done. You know, it's all done sort of behind Some the of those scenes. Exciting so th actuarial people probably get involved. That's exactly. They're really the life of the party. <laughs> so, and that's and that's where we send people. So, if if they want to actually figure out what the value of that plan is, and for example, one spouse wants. Um, to say you keep your pension and I'd like more of the house, which will keep me in the family home, then what they can do is they retain an actuary to actually value the pension plan. So you can go either either way. Typically, people just say they're going to divide it under the Family Law Act, and 
you know, keep they it just, clean. And, yeah, and, and keep it clean. You know exactly. the spousal rollover, though? So, because there's this thing out there called a spousal RSP. And based on retirement, if you're contributing to the spousal RSP, I think you got to go back about eight episodes, people, to see about that one. I'm not even sure when we talked about it this year, but I know we did. So person A is the contributor. They're putting money into their spousal RSP. So they're giving the money to their spouse, but they're getting the tax deduction. So what they're doing is they're working on splitting of income when they retire, but they're starting the dividing of the assets now. uh, So they each grow the same amount. But the thing is under CRA, if, if that money gets spent within three years of a contribution, the taxes get pushed back to the contributor. So, I'm, you know, the so-and-so is depositing to their their spouse and then they get divorced and it's only a year after the last contribution. What if the spouse who received the money then goes to spend it and then the spouse who did the contribution would get, would they not get dinged with the taxes? Idea. Yeah, so that's but it used to be that way, and and I do that part out. I do know of a story. No, this is good to know. This I know of a story way back when about this is quite a while ago when that was exactly the defined rule. I think you can negotiate that stuff now in the separation of assets, but where uh, a spouse had been contributing immensely to, in this case, it was the wife's spouse, large P, and there was about uh, almost three hundred grand in there. Yeah, and. He turned out to be a nasty, violent piece of work. And so she came to me and said, what do I do? I said, sign, and then tomorrow we'll cash in all the RSPs. So all the tax came off, except uh, when the t- when the slips came at the end of the next year, yep. he got stuck with 300 grand of taxable income. She took the money and reinvested it. Oh, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, and you have to be careful to make sure to address all that in your, you know, in a separation agreement for, you know, capital gains and and also And really in a funny way, it's like people always get <clears throat> pardon me, always get the ILA, I learned that today, independent <laughs> legal advice because it is an emotional thing. Um you're not, you're always not thinking, thinking with a straight, clear head. Yeah, and having someone else there to look out for your best interest, who really has you, that's your job for your client, is you're looking out for their best interest because you have no vested interest. You're just trying to make sure everything is fair. And the spouse you're divorcing, their lawyer's trying to do the same. It's not, I mean, I know people say, well, they personally attack, they're not personally attacking anyone. Their yeah. job is to look out for their client and make sure they've they've uncovered everything and everything is divided based on law, fair. And people take it so personally and I, hard not to. I've been through it because I had Absolutely. a starter wife. Um, starter wife stories. Like starter There's house? the book. Yeah, starter <laughs> wife, starter house. No, and, it, it, and I, maybe because of what I do, I just looked at it as the divorce and division of assets is simply, and the reason was not fun, but I just looked at it as, it's a business decision and you just divide and don't get all emotional. But when you're in the middle of it. And I stayed calm. Yeah. And the law, the mediator, um, by one of your founding partners, actually from Oli way back when you know, recommended a mediator, they recommended everyone agreed on it. I went elsewhere and then just had your firm look at it when this was quite a long time, long time ago, actually. Um, 
but it is. It's, it's, it, I say this on radio and TV all the time. Never make an emotional decision about money. You will always make the wrong decision. This is the perfect example. You've got to keep yourself calm and think, because you can't think I'm going to make them pay or I'm going to win. There is no winner. There, there is no winner. I mean, lives are being torn apart no matter de- what. You're dealing with your children, extended family. These are emotional decisions. And I mean, mediators are great because hearing something from a third party neutral person is very different than hearing it from the lawyer for the, the, the spouse that you no longer I, love. You know, I remember that now. You bring me back to uh, when we had that, and there was a few difficult discussions involved in that. And, and where, my ex was asking a, a fair question. I, I look back now and I was asking a question and didn't know. And the mediator said, well, you guys can choose to go to that route, but I can tell you kind of not as exact words, but nine times out of 10, here's what the decision is going to be from a judge because yep. here's what the law says. So you can choose to go that route, but here's the most likely outcome. And that, and so that's where it's literally give and take. Okay, you can have that. I'll take this. Here's the value, roughly. Here's the research on it. And that's exactly close what enough. Do. Let's save thousands of dollars. Yeah, they they do rough justice, and the benefit is you get to create your own solution instead of a judge who has met you for one day out of your entire life, and they're relying on what they're reading in a court file and evidence on the stand or in an affidavit. Instead, you who know each other best are crafting a solution that you can both live with. Yeah, and I find for, and we talk about this in financial planning when we're doing our Omni formula, when horrible things happen in life, loss of a spouse, et cetera, et cetera, and and tons of other things too, that loss of a job, all these other things, the quicker you can settle it and move on, the better your well-being and your future health is. And this is no different. The quicker you can come to a, Resolution. A resolution, you get to move on. And that's what I tell people, they say about living in the family home. And I talk to a lot of people about that. And a lot of people in the end say, I'm glad I moved. Because when you're in the the family home, you think about it emotionally and for what's best, the Mm -hmm. kids not disrupting them. But you turn around and you have memories around every corner. Yeah. And maybe if you want to keep them in the same school, maybe you should just move to a house down the street or something. But, (laughs) But again, in this day and age in BC with real estate, easier said than done. And that's why it's important to try and resolve these things quickly and as painlessly as possible so you can move on. It's better for the kids. It's better for you. And the reality is you've got to be able to co-parent for potentially years to come. And how can you do that if you're in an environment that's not conducive to that? Well, on that note, people, episode 16, and it was juicy, uh, is in the books. We've got the contact information there for Sarah. And if you are so unfortunate to be going through this situation in life with separation uh, of assets and finances, or if things are all rosy and peachy and butterflies and rainbows, but the cohabitation might be in your near future, use the contact information, reach out to Sarah, and follow the advice she's given here and get some guidance because uh, better off going to a professional than trying to do these things yourself. Contact Sarah at BTM Lawyers in Port Moody. They're firm with with anything you need, really, not just this, but there's a lot of other issues that your firm looks after. And I've used lots of different partners there for different things in life and just something as simple as opening a corporation and doing a corporate agreement or something and and our buy-sell agreements and all sorts of things we do. Uh, If you want more information on this, 
other podcasts we've done, go to YouTube or wherever you see podcasts, go to Everything Financial Group, download, watch it over, over again. You can contact us at everythingfinancial.com, reach out to us in Langley, White Rock, Victoria, Scottsdale, whatever works for you. We'll be happy to help you, bring you in for a consultation and see if we're the right fit. And if so, we can work on your Omni Formula financial plan. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you in Episode 17.